0: You're listening to the Agony Column News Report, featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotron.com/agony.
1: So this is Rumi speaking in the in the novel. This is his voice. The year is 1245, and the place is Konya in Anatolia. Bountiful is your life, full and complete, or so you think until someone comes along and makes you realize what you have been missing all this time. Like a mirror that reflects what is absent rather than present, he shows you the void in your soul, the void you have resisted seeing. That person can be a lover, a friend, or a spiritual master. Sometimes it can be a child to look after. What matters is to find the soul that will complete yours. All the prophets have given the same advice. Find the one who will be your mirror. For me, that mirror is Shems of Tebris. Until he came and forced me to look deep into the crannies of my soul, I had not faced the fundamental truth about myself, that though successful and prosperous outside, I was lonely and unfulfilled inside. It is as if for years on end you compile a personal dictionary. In it, you give your definition of every concept that matters to you, such as truth, happiness or beauty. At every major turning point in life, you refer to this dictionary, hardly ever feeling the need to question its premises. Then one day, a stranger comes and snatches your precious dictionary and throws it away. All your definitions need to be redefined, he says it is time for you to unlearn everything you know. And you, for some reason unbeknownst to your mind, but obvious to your heart, instead of raising objections or getting cross with him, gladly agree. This is what Shems has done to me. Our friendship has taught me so much, but more than that, he has taught me to unlearn everything I knew. When you love someone this much, you expect everyone around you to feel the same way, sharing your joy, and when that doesn't happen, you feel surprised, then offended, and betrayed. How could I possibly make my family and friends see what I see? How could I describe the indescribable? Shems is my sea of mercy and grace. He is my son of truth and faith. I call him the king of kings of spirit. He is my fountain of life and my tall cypress tree, majestic and evergreen. His companionship is like the fourth reading of the Koran a journey that can only be experienced from within, but never grasped from the outside. Unfortunately, most people make their evaluations based on images and hearsay. To them, Shems is an eccentric dervish. They think he behaves strangely and speaks blasphemy, that he is utterly unpredictable and unreliable. To me, however, he is love that moves the whole universe, at times retreating into the background and holding every piece together at times exploding in bursts. An encounter of this kind happens once in a lifetime, once in 38 years. Ever since Shems came into our lives, people have been asking me what it is in him that I find so special, but there's no way I can answer them. At the end of the day, those who ask this question are the ones who won't understand it. And as for those who do understand, they don't ask such things. The quandary I find myself in reminds me of the story of Layla and Harun al-Rashid, the famous Abbasid emperor. Upon hearing that a Bedouin poet named Kais had fallen hopelessly in love with Layla and lost his mind for her and was therefore named Mejnun, the madman, the emperor became very curious about the woman who had caused such misery. This Layla must be a very special creature, he thought, a woman far superior to all other women. Perhaps she is an enchantress, unequalled in beauty and charm. I must see her. Excited, intrigued, he played every trick in the book to find a way to see Leila with his own eyes. Finally, one day, they brought Leila to the emperor's palace. When she took off her veil, Harun al-Rashid was disillusioned. Not that Leila was ugly, crippled or old, but she wasn't extraordinarily attractive either. She was a human being with ordinary human needs and several flaws a simple woman like countless others the emperor did not hide his disappointment are you the one mejnun has been crazy about why you look so ordinary what is so special about you leila broke into a smile yes i am leila she said but you see you're not mejnun you have to see me with the eyes of mejnun Otherwise, you could never solve this mystery called love. How can I explain the same mystery to my family, friends, or students? How can I make them understand that for them to grasp what is so special about Shems of Tebriz, they have to start looking at him with the eyes of mijnun
0: Elif Shafak is an award-winning and best-selling novelist and the most widely read female writer in Turkey. Her novels include The Bastard of Istanbul and The Saint of Incipient Insanities. Her new novel is The 40 Rules of Love. Thank you for joining me, Elif.
1: Thank you. It's my pleasure.
0: You know, a lot of writers mix characters. A lot of writers mix plots. A lot of writers write about landscapes. I, I think in the same way you orchestrate uh, realities, spiritual visions of the world in your books.
1: Thank you. I, I think I like to think of my novels as like buildings that have many you know, corridors, rooms, layers. So um, it, I, I, I think I want to give the, my readers the freedom to spend some time in the rooms they like I think every reader brings their own gaze, their own perspective into the story, so instead of following just one line of storytelling, I like to, you know, lay out multiple uh, levels, multiple layers, and then let the reader choose um, his or her
0: direction. Y- your new novel um, takes as its main character a, a woman, Ella Rubenstein. Uh, T- tell us about choosing that particular character she's not your not a character that you've written about before
1: right i um in in the forty rules of love if i may say this i have a story within a story a novel within a novel mm-hmm. a love story within another love story so um the mo- the modern component takes place between a um jewish american housewife living in Boston and the modern Sufi living in Amsterdam, who is of Scottish uh, origin. So uh, as you pointed out, I mean, she's not someone I've written about before. Yet at the same time, I think in almost all of my novels, I like to bring together characters from very different cultural, religious and national backgrounds and see what happens when they Get together, you know. See the energy that comes out of that. I'm someone who's very fond of cosmopolitan culture, um, in my life and in my writing. I like to mix um, characters that might seem to be a bit different at first glance, but in reality, I think they have so much in common. And as a matter of fact, I think art and fiction, especially the art of storytelling, very much depends on connections. You know, on building connections. Um, so this is something that I cherish.
0: Could you talk about, just give us an an idea of your background, just so we know kind of where you're coming from, because I think it's as fascinating a story as as any you've written.
1: Um, I was was born in Strasbourg in France in uh, 1971. I was raised by a single mom. Then um, shortly after I was born, my parents got separated. So with my mom, we came back to Turkey, but then she became a diplomat and we traveled a lot. So I was—I spent part of my childhood in Madrid, in Spain. Then there was a time in uh, Jordan, Amman, in Germany, Cologne. I came back to Ankara, uh, Turkey's capital. Then I went to Istanbul in my early 20s when I started publishing my books. And then I came to the States, actually. I lived in Boston for a year, another year in Michigan, Ann Arbor, and almost two years in Tucson, Arizona. Then I went back to Istanbul again And now I'm based in Istanbul, but I still keep traveling. So life has always been pretty nomadic for me, uh, I guess.
0: It it strikes me that um, this kind of nomadic life—it—it seems like it'd be difficult to start as a as a writer. How? What led you to first start writing in in Turkish? I mean, that's, that's that's
1: you know, I I have been writing fiction. Um since really uh, relatively speaking uh, uh, from an early age onwards, mm-hmm. ever since I was eight or nine i i you know been writing, but that's not precisely because I wanted to become a novelist to tell you the truth i didn't know there was such a lifestyle, you know I had no idea mm-hmm. for me, it was like an animal instinct um the need to write came to be first, the desire to become a novelist came to me much later. You know, because that requires to be more conscious about the decision. So that came to me in my early 20s. But the other need to write was, was, you know, there uh, ever since I was a child. And that was mostly because, I have to say, I spent a very lonely um, childhood. My mother was a working mom. So, you know, I was alone at home uh, during many hours. And books became my, my best friends so that's how everything started. M- more and more I realized there was this other world of imagination which was much more colorful than the world I was living in because I thought my life was very boring. So it, as much as I could, I ran to this other world. That's how everything started. I started with diaries. Um, very soon diaries evolved into short stories and then short stories evolved into novels. Ever since then writing has you know, been Um, you know, it it accompanying me. And I think I see my writing as the only suitcase that I can take with me wherever I go. It's like my existential glue. Um, It holds my pieces together. That's, it gives me a sense of continuity, a sense of coherence. I understand when you say, you know, all these movements, how do they affect my writing, right? Mm. Um, I understand some writers are disturbed when, you know, when they have a they have a they have a certain order. They like to keep their order, and I respect their lifestyle. But I was a never I was never like that. I I think I I like to be on the move, movements, migrations, journeys. This is something that I find spiritually and intellectually very stimulating. You know,
0: it it sounds seems to me from what you're saying that you've always led a, a very spiritual life. That that you've <sighs> led, led a life. Outside of your body, outside of your surroundings
1: oh, that's such a <laughs> such an interesting question. It's a difficult question. I think spirituality is important to me. You know, I spent some part of my childhood with my grandmother, and although I can't say that she she was a Sufi, but she was nevertheless someone who had you know lots of room in her life for superstitions um the non-material aspect of life, maybe I should put it that way, mm-hmm. the, the mm-hmm. things that might seem irrational to an outsider, I've always liked that. So there's a lot of that in my books as well. I know that culture that exists in my in my country that is carried on by women, You know, generations of women, the oral, oral culture of women. Um, Perhaps I should say I grew up seeing two very different kinds of womanhood. You know, Mm -hmm. on the one hand was my mother, very well-educated, an independent woman, you know, very modern, very westernized, very urban. Um, And on the other hand is my grandmother, perhaps less educated, less urbanized, less westernized, more traditional, more superstitious. And I grew up observing both of them. So, um, and I have a lot of respect for both. I reflect their worlds in, in my in my novels. So from the very beginning, I think I had this bridge to this um, non-material world, uh, if I may put it that way. But spirituality, I think, is is different than religiosity. And in the age we're living in, perhaps more and more people are feeling the need to talk about this.
0: Let's talk a little bit about. Um, This novel is 40 Rules of Love, says here, it's a novel of Rumi. Mm. Uh, Tell us what Rumi is to you, or Um, who he is, and what what this all means.
1: Rumi, um, the great poet, philosopher, mystic, 13th century mystic, in Turkey we call him Mevlana. Um, It always amazes me, you know, when I travel around the world, I get to know people who really can't find the place, the location of Konya on a map, or the, or the place of Anatolia on the map. But when you say Rumi, it means something to them. Actually, it means a lot to them. I see the light in their eyes, you know, when they talk about Rumi. It always really intrigues me to see this charm that Rumi has for us. Almost 800 years have passed since his time. Across cultures, across centuries, you know, his words keep coming with us. I find that really, really, I think it's like magic. Um, To me, Rumi is the symbol, the voice of love, the religion of love. He talks, and he lived, we must remember, he lived at a very turbulent time. You know, Anatolia in 13th century was not an easy place. Um, There were lots, in many ways it resembled our modern age because there were lots of cultural misunderstandings, there were lots of religious clashes, and there was perhaps fear of the other So at such a time of unrest and and turbulence, here is this Islamic philosopher talking about the religion of love as something that surpasses all distinctions that exist on the surface, which is very universal. So to me, Rumi symbolizes the essence, you know, is is the religion of love, is the voice of of the religion of love.
0: And and, uh, matching this, I, I want you to talk a little bit about uh, Sufi what well, well, what is Sufism and and and how does that play into this?
1: you know my my interest in Sufism started when I was a college student, mm-hmm. and to this day, it's still a mystery to me why I felt attracted to this subject because it had nothing to do with with my life. you know, I didn't grow up in a in a religious or or you know Sufi environment. It was not something I took from my family i I grew up in a very secular way. Um, And when I look at my friends, the life I was living, you know, I was a very, um, I think I was a feminist, nihilist, anarcho-pacifist, leftist at the time. So when I put all those labels together, it had nothing to do with spirituality, or so I thought at the time. But nevertheless, I became interested in this subject through books. And perhaps that was the normal thing, because for someone like me, you know, books are usually the gate that opens you know, uh, my entrance is through books y- about many things in life. Perhaps for someone else it's different. Perhaps for someone else it's music. Perhaps for another person it's you know you meet someone and you you you're intrigued. So it changes from one person to another. But in my case it was books. So I r- I started reading on the subject, and one book leads to another. The information you find in a you know foot footnote leads you to another book. I wrote my thesis on uh, Sufi philosophy um, and ever since then, that, that that day, you know, it kept coming with me. But I have to say at the beginning it was more of an intellectual quest, you know. But in time I became more emotionally attached. I think it, it moved from my mind to my heart. So my interest grew, but it changed uh, in, in form. And then came a time when I realized I want to write about this. Uh, basically, I wanted to write about love the spiritual and the more mundane aspects of love, love in the East, love in the West, love in the past, love in the present, and then connect all those pieces together. And once you want to do that, uh, Rumi is the perfect person to
0: to look at. You know, it strikes me that as I listen to you that you just embrace this really interesting, contradictory worldview of somebody who's cosmopolitan and lives in the city, and yet you have this kind of connection to the immaterial and the mm. imminent, uh, at, uh, and they're equal, and, and you mix them. And I think you also mix them in your writing in a really unusual way.
1: Thank you. Thank you. I uh, you know, I appreciate what you said. It, it, it's, it matters to me. I think you're right. I mean, I like to combine um, this cosmopolitan... Culture, uh, multicultural, you know, structures, but also um, put—I don't know what to call it because superstitions might not be the right Um, word—but this magical world that uh, that I I believe exists in the life we're living, because to me the life um, life is not only composed of the things we can touch and see. I think there's more than that to, to. to life destiny, so <laughs> there's destiny there's faith there i think there, there are connections mm-hmm. there are coincidences and i don't think coincidences are coincidental you know Omens. so uh, so there's the yeah there are signs you know there are many many things and um when you're a writer you can write about these things you know it's perhaps for uh, for another person it's more difficult to talk about these things because they will say they will think you're just being irrational but as a writer we have the luxury of of uh, being irrational
0: I I I love this uh, idea of uh, the luxury of irrationality. <laughs> that's a, right. That, that's a well, you know, and I think that makes sense because it, it is a luxury in in that it enriches your life that you if you can approach life from a multiplicity of perceptual viewpoints and and not all of them need to be connected to the everyday reality we live in and by uh, looking at things from the point of view of a twelfth century 13th century mystic mm. a, a, and and uh, create a created book that never existed in reality,
1: right right, um,
0: right. to you get a, a really uh, I think a richer view of where we are right now than you could possibly get by just sticking to the here and now.
1: absolutely. And I think this is one of the beauties of fiction, right? Mm-hmm. One of the beauties of literature. To me, I mean, literature is about journeys, endless journeys. So when I write fiction, I don't necessarily talk about myself. I mean, I'm not that interested in myself. Well, on the
0: other hand, you say your life has been in in endless journeys. (laughs) That's true. That's true. I
1: I cherish journeys. Uh Absolutely. But the thing is, I mean, when I'm writing fiction, I'm more interested in not being myself, Mm -hmm. you know, in surpassing, if I may, in transcending. Um, The limits of the self that has been given to me by birth, because each and every one of us, we are born into a certain context, a cultural context, there's a certain family, there's a certain environment, but then I believe through fiction, through art, through literature, we can try to see what it feels like to be the other. You know, you can put yourself in the shoes of another person and then look at the reality from his perspective and then keep moving and then look from another person's perspective because empathy is such a central notion for writers you know, to build those connections of, of empathy. And for us to be able to do that, we need to stop being ourselves when we are writing and start being someone else, and then someone else, and then someone else. It's endless journeys into the soul of other people. And also it's endless journeys into other centuries, into other um, countries, cultures. This is what I like doing. Um, but I have to say, it's p- sometimes it's not that easy for a non-Western author to to do this, because there is an expectation that, let's say if you are defined as a Muslim woman writer, right, or a a woman writer coming from the Muslim world, then there's a certain expectation that you should be writing stories that fit that definition. So you should be writing about the problems of being a woman in a Muslim country, and i find that very narrow, you know suffocating sometimes because it narrows us down i mean in one book you can write about muslim women but maybe in another book i'm going to write about a norway you know a character living in norway or another person living in i don't know india why not it's endless because imagination is endless so that kind of pigeonholing can be a little bit um limiting for us writers coming from various parts of the world
0: it seems to me that you would be a very difficult writer to pigeonhole because <laughs> you have such an imaginative breadth to your work. Thank you. Um, let's talk just a little bit about you know, the Forty Rules of Love in terms of there's I, I love anything that has a kind of metafictional aspect to it. I, that that kind of those kind of books I find really interesting mm-hmm. um, because you have to immerse yourself as a reader. You get to immerse yourself. In the book, and then in the book within the book, right. and there's a couple of levels of reality. And it strikes to me that one of the things you do very well in this book, um, you orchestrate characters, you orchestrate plots, um, and you know the character arcs and, and the love affairs. But you al- also do something that's really interesting: is orchestrate the layers of reality in this book.
1: <laughs> Thank you. I, I you know, I feel honored when I listen to you, but I have to say. I'm not sure I orchestrate the the characters or or or the um or the stories within the story it's more like I feel the the characters guide me you know they become um and this is something I I strongly believe in I, I don't feel I think there are two different ways of writing a novel you know the first path is you're like a like a father of your characters, perhaps like a puppeteer, you locate yourself above the characters, above the text, above the layers, and then control them from a certain distance with a lot of rationality, with a lot of reason and and engineering and plotting. I have a lot of respect for this kind of writing as well, but it's not close to my heart. That's not the way I write. I prefer to write with my intuition. So usually what happens is I start with an image. Um, The visual aspect is very important to me. I chase a scene. Sometimes I chase colors, you know, the hues, the shadows. And then let's see where the characters are going. So usually when I'm writing about a character, I don't know what's going to happen to him or her eight pages later. I don't know how the novel is going to end. You're a bit like... you. drunk you know like a drunk man trying to walk straight and I love that about fiction so when my fiction surprises me I think it's a good sign because it also surprises the reader I think that the writer should you know um, take the risk of losing herself among all those characters instead of trying to be above the characters to be on the same level with them is something that I prefer to do that's why I don't feel like I'm orchestrating I feel like um, we're doing this job together
0: <laughs> it it re it's the the books are seem uh, very seamless and, and finely, finely woven and finely written. Um so but it seems what you're describing is is almost like you dream your way through the books.
1: I think so, yes. Yes.
0: Now uh what, ta- tell us about the immersing yourself in the we have uh Ella Rubenstein who who's you know, kind of lives in a culture that is essentially somewhat vapid, right? <laughs> um, right. Compared to the culture right. where you live and spend a lot of your time in Istanbul, which right. is just this collision of right. religions and religiosity and right. spiritualism and hardcore right. capitalism and and everything in between, right? Um, right. Compared right. to somebody who's living in a suburb, did you find it difficult to like peel back? to become somebody who lives in a place that's kind of, like, bland?
1: <laughs> you know, I, I think this was one of the um, dualities I felt in my life when I was living in Tucson, because in many ways Tucson, is, uh, as beautiful it is, uh, at the same time it's a little bit... I wouldn't say isolated, perhaps, but, you know, it looks within, inside. Mm-hmm. Um, and Istanbul is so noisy, chaotic, you know, as you said, crowded, so many so many layers. So f- I, I, when I was committing back and forth between Arizona and Istanbul, you know, the desert, the tranquility, I, I never forget. I, so I, th- there are all these experiences that might have left some impact on me. I never forget this. When I first came to the States and started living in Boston at Mount Holyoke, um, the one one professor in women's studies, she said to me, "Oh, you're gonna love this place. You know, it's so quiet in winter. You can hear the sound your hair uh, makes when you're when you're walking." And I remember feeling very, you know, alarmed and and terrified because to me I'm so used to hearing noise and and all that. And I think I like it, but anyhow, I mean, I, I one part of me knows that experience. Uh, one part of me knows Ella's life. And one part of me tries to understand, tries to empathize. I didn't want to make her a very, very, you know, interesting character. I wanted to make her a familiar character, and this was a very deliberate choice. I wanted to tell the story of Ella, this woman living in Boston, in such a way that when a woman in Izmir or in Istanbul or in Rome reads about her, you know, it sounds familiar. She feels something familiar. Perhaps that woman in Istanbul has never been in America. Perhaps that woman in Istanbul has never had a Jewish friend or a Jewish American friend, but still she can connect because she knows what it feels like to be Ella. That was you know, how I wanted to construct her personality or, or her layer. Um.
0: <laughs> Boy, that's so fascinating. <laughs> uh, Thank you. You, you have uh, this, this character who appears first by proxy, uh, mm-hmm. Aziz. Right. I mean, we see the outpourings mm-hmm. of his heart right, right. as in a written form. Right. Before, and, but when we meet him directly, he, you know, he's just sending like little letters. Right, right. Talk about—is that how you created the character from the from the book backwards?
1: Yeah. Wow. That's such a good question. You see, I, I think one of the central things about Ella and women like Ella is the constant emphasis they put on the future. Ella is someone who is constantly planning tomorrow, the, the very next day, the very next week, you know, her, her a year from now on. Um, she is planning the, her children's schedule, her husband's schedule, the family, you know, to-do lists and all that. Uh, whereas Aziz is someone who lives in the present moment and only in the present moment. So for a woman like Ella to fall in love with someone like Aziz, and abandon this idea of an, you know, imaginary future that she has been, you know, uh, working for all her life, for the present moment, for the love that exists in this present moment. That's a huge, huge step. Um, I wanted to Ella uh, to take that huge step, but on the other hand, I think the book could have ended in many different ways. And it's, it's in my eyes, it's an open-ended, you know, book. Different readers might have different endings for the book, uh, and I and I would like that. But as I mean, in a nutshell is um, is a very colorful personality. He has had, you know, many different lives in the past until he became a Sufi, until he became interested in Sufism and transformed and, in a way, recreated himself from scratch. So he's a man who has hit the bottom and then, in a way, recreated his whole energy, his whole personality. Um, he's, he's very cosmopolitan. He's someone, you know, who travels around the world and um, perhaps the, the most important thing about him is he's, so, he's someone who lives Sufi philosophy. So to him Shems of Tabriz or Rumi, these are not theoretical abstract figures put on a pedestal you know he he in, he has internalized Sufi philosophy and he applies it to his daily life which i think is the most difficult thing to do because at the end of the day i mean we can talk for hours and hours about the philosophy but it's one it's quite another thing to apply that philosophy in our daily life that the daily life is the most difficult thing to change i think
0: that's a really interesting <laughs> observation <laughs> boy now um when you were talking about the way he um had to recreate himself it strikes me that that's exactly what you had to do with every single character and every single page in this book right and and so i i'd say that uh, as characters go he might not have been such a challenge for you to create because this is something you're doing yeah. all the time
1: that's true that's true i think writing fiction sometimes resembles acting you know you stop being yourself and you you you try to embody that person and every character in this book i mean there, there are several characters Actually, there are many characters, especially where I talk about the 13th century. You know, there's a beggar, there's a prostitute, there's a fundamentalist living in that age. There are people who are jealous of Shem Tabriz. So all these personalities, and some of them don't look very nice at first glance, but even those personalities I felt close to my heart when I was writing it, when I was writing their part. In this book, every person narrates his o- own story or her own story, and I wanted them to speak. So um, for that to happen, of course, you have to uh, empathize with that character closely.
0: What happens to Elif?
1: (laughs) Elif is gone, (laughs) you know, when (laughs) I'm writing. Uh, But really, joking aside, I think when we're writing fiction, we use a different part of our brain. Um, I have often had the feeling that, um, maybe this is going to sound schizophrenic, but the the the person who does the talking and the readings, you know, the book readings and the book signings is a different person than the, than the one who's writing fiction. I, I sometimes have, have this feeling because when I'm writing fiction, I write very intensely. I'm, I, I'm not someone who writes, you know, um, during the same hours every day, like a bureaucrat sitting at a table and with the same pace, you know, writing the same amount. Rather than that, I have a pendulum And when the pendulum goes to one side, I start writing my new novel. Then I write intensely day and night until I finish it. And when I'm done with it, the pendulum switches to the other side, and I become a more social and normal person, you know? So um, uh, we change a lot. I mean, at least I change. I, I experience that all the time.
0: How fast does that pendulum swing? I mean, do you immerse yourself in your novels for months at a time?
1: Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it takes eight months, you know. Sometimes it takes a year. You, you, you can never know this. And what happened in this book is perhaps it took a bit longer than usual because I wrote The Forty Rules of Love in English and then it was translated into Turkish by a very good translator. And I owe him a lot because once he was done with the translation, I took the translation from him and I rewrote it. And when I was done with it I went back to the English and I rewrote it. So which which was a crazy amount of work. <laughs> that is <laughs> it, was, crazy. It, it was it was a bit insane. Um but for someone who enjoys language, you know, who loves language and I and I really do, um it's it's really stimulating. So I love commuting back and forth between the English language and the Turkish language. I feel connected to each in a very different way. English for me is a very mathematical language. You know, it's a language of precision if you're looking for the precise word, the exact word that's out there. It has an amazing vocabulary, and I love exploring the language as if it was a as if it were a continent. Whereas Turkish for me is very emotional. You know, I have a very emotional attachment to it, and I love its <coughs> grammar, the grammatical structure. It's based on agglutination like you keep adding suffixes like a train. And for a poet, for a writer, the grammar is really, really rich. So each language has its own weaknesses, has its own synthesis. But I think we change as we move from one language to another. Even our voices change. I mean, I, as I was touring America, um, the West Coast, I have had some Turkish Americans telling me, I find it easier to say no in English than in Turkish. That is so interesting. You know, every every language is a new zone of existence, I think.
0: The could I ask you to either read or just say something in Turkish? Could oh. you <laughs> <laughs> I'm just curious to hear to hear that other brain that other that uh, the, the <laughs> a, other leaf speak.
1: Well, I wish I had the um, Turkish copy of my novel with me. Um, but I'll just say, you know, that we're having this interview here and it's uh, you know, it's a wonderful interview. I'll say that in Turkish, okay? Okay. Um sh- İşte bugün bu stüdyoda buluştuk, konuşuyoruz karşılıklı sohbet ediyoruz. Çok da keyifli, enerjisi çok güzel bir uh, sohbet geçiyor. Teşekkür ederim. That's that's it. That's Turkish. <laughs>
0: <laughs> when you when you wrote this book, yeah. was your brain operating in English or in Turkish?
1: It was it was operating in English. And th- this this is something that matters a lot to me. I mean, I don't translate when I'm writing. You know, I don't translate from Turkish into English. I disconnect from Turkish, and my brain operates in English. And then when I'm writing in Turkish, I disconnect from English, and my brain operates in Turkish. I think that's, you know, that's an essential move we have to make. But I I must say, I mean, this is a bit unusual in the Turkish literary scene. Um, And at the beginning, people were very surprised um, that I was, you know, writing in two languages. I've been doing this for the last six or seven years. I wrote my last three novels in English first. And, I'm an, I, and I am enjoying it very much. I, I must say it's not that easy for, for an outsider to do this because English for me is an acquired language. I did not grow up bilingual. I will always make, you know, uh, maybe mistakes in this language, my pronunciation, my grammar. But I know what it feels like to be an outsider in a language, you know? I know the the experience of the immigrant. When When you're an outsider, when you're a foreigner or an immigrant, your mind, your brain is always faster than your tongue. You always want to say more, but you end up seeing less. So there's always this element of frustration that keeps coming with you. There's always this element of absence, the gap between the brain and the tongue which is very intimidating, you know, And, and since language is power, many of us feel intimidated by that absence. But if we manage not to be intimidated by that, I think it's also very, very stimulating, that absence, because it teaches you, it encourages you to think twice, to put more thought into language. And language is not only about words, it's also about culture, philosophy, philosophy of life. So once we're okay with that gap, between the, the the brain and the tongue, then we are encouraged to think more, much more thought into this. That's that's what I'm doing, and I think um, this is the perfect age for this because it's the age of migrations, movements. People are moving all around the world, and I always say to myself, in this age, people are dreaming in more than one language. You know, we can dream in English, we can dream in Chinese, we can dream in Indi- Indian, uh, in in, uh, in in in Russian. So. If we can dream in more than one language, we can also write fiction in more than one language.
0: It strikes me that this kind of dualistic nature that you have, that's part of who your identity, it's part of your soul. I think that that must and clearly does inform the way you write your fiction.
1: Uh, I think so too. Yeah, it, it definitely has as an effect. You see, I... Um, i I feel connected to western um literary you know traditions, especially of the novel i I read uh, as much as I can european novelists Russian novelists American novelists, and I feel very very much connected but at the same time, I have an Eastern or middle eastern or anatolian you know background and it's also there. And I like to combine um, especially the Eastern traditions of storytelling, most of which exist in oral culture. Unfortunately, they have not made their way into the written culture as much as we would like uh, it. So I like to combine oral culture and written culture. I like to combine that Western heritage and the Eastern um, traditions
0: as as best as I can. You know, it strikes me that in oral culture is in many ways, by definition, a a spiritual culture, because it's not written down. it's, It's not connected to something that I can hold in my hands.
1: That is true. I think oral culture is much more spiritual. And also, it's a domain in which women are very active. You know, written culture is more male dominated, especially in my country. I would say, when I look at the, when I look at the writers journalists editors critics you know especially highbrow literature it's mostly dominated by men men are much more visible and active interestingly most fiction readers happen to be women so it feels like sometimes men write and women read um that's one of the things that i would like to see changing i think more women should write more men should read you know
0: talk about just <clears throat> being i i, I mean being a a woman who stands head and shoulders i think above many of the male writers in in her own country and in other countries um given the the turkish culture and given cult world culture right that must feel kind of strange and and maybe a little frightening
1: <laughs> um I, I sometimes get this feeling when when you're a male writer nobody calls you male writer right (laughs) you're you're a writer and everybody (laughs) respects you as a writer as a novelist but when you're a woman writer then you're a woman first and then a writer that's the perception it's the same in my country it's the same almost everywhere so um this is a struggle i mean for women i think it's not easy to write about sometimes it, it feels intimidating to write about sexuality femininity i think there are you know times wha- wha- wha- when we try to um um defeminize ourselves or defeminize our voices so i I observe all these all these things, but at the same time, I have to say in Turkey there's a very dynamic, beautiful uh, you know readership again most of them are women and women from very different generations from very different backgrounds and i feel a deep bond between uh, you know i think there's a, there's a beautiful bond between me and and my readers and most of my inspiration comes from from them i owe, uh, in that sense i owe them a lot y-
0: your inspiration comes from t- tell me what you mean by that <coughs> i mean do you do you think about your your reader when you're writing um
1: i do not you know write uh, with with with my readers in my mind um but i think every writer who publishes his work or her work at the end of the day wants that work to reach you know readers the readers because otherwise we wouldn't even publish our work and we have to be sincere about th- about this i mean every writer wants to be read by people and and by many people you know This is a very natural desire, and and, uh, I I don't see anything wrong in that. The only thing is, while I'm writing the story, I have to concentrate on the story. If I start thinking about the readers, then it could be misleading, because then you you start to negotiate with the story, and that doesn't work. So until I'm done with the story, I, I try not to think about that. But of course, when I'm done with the story, when I give it to my editor, when I give it to my publisher... Um, and then the book is out of my hands, then I do certainly wonder if the if the readers are going to like it um one there 's one distinction that I make sometimes the elitist world can be a little bit too negative you know that unfortunately, you I mean you would expect writers to support each other more or intellectuals to support each other more, but it doesn 't work like that. Uh, there's a lot of uh, negativity, you know, negative energy is circulating there. So what I've tried, what I've started doing over the years, was instead of concentrating on what, you know, a literary critic is saying, on what a journalist or columnist is writing about my work, I concentrate more on on my bond with the readers. I do as many literary events as possible, and I listen to them. I don't just, you know. Um, just make monologues and then leave. I listen. I like to listen, and I think every novelist has to be a good listener. We have to listen to a what people are saying and b how they're saying what they're saying, you know the way they're say the the mm, the style and I like to listen to people, so and I travel I listen, and I love dialogues
0: It's interesting i you'd say you travel and you listen. Do you like to eavesdrop on people? <laughs> <laughs>
1: I know I have to say no, but <laughs> the truth would be yes, of course, yeah. <laughs>
0: it it shows in your dialogue which has that really kind of uh you're there feel. Um yeah. could could you talk about uh it it strikes me that the you know, the book Sweet Blasphemy mm-hmm. um it's it, it's a really interesting contradictions in terms because it's in a book you wrote Mm-hmm. but it's not a book you wrote.
1: <laughs> right.
0: Right. <laughs> uh, talk about becoming Aussies.
1: Oh god. <laughs> That's a tough question. Yes, in the book there's a there's a writer who has written a book called Sweet Blasphemy. And it's a title I borrowed from Rumi, uh, in Coleman Barks' translation of Rumi the the term is used as sweet p- blasphemy. And it's, you know, it's a concept that Uh, I find it really, really intriguing. But coming back to Aziz, of course, it was quite quite a challenge for me to try to be him and to write another novel within my novel from his perspective, using his style, uh, but I do these things. I love doing these things. I don't have only one literary style, you know. I think I have multiple. So I, I love switching back and forth. And when I look at my all my novels, I have n- nine books uh, in t- available in Turkish, which have not come out in English yet. But uh, it will take time, you know, step by step, inshallah, as we say. Um, so when I look at all my novels, I see that each and every one of them is so very different. Their style is different, the language is different, their energy is different. And that's precisely because I was a different person. When I'm writing a novel, it changes me, it transforms me. So I was a different person even wh- before I started the 40 Rules of Love. And then when I finished it, you know, it had changed me. Uh, a bit more. That's why I, I think I have multiple, multiple styles, and sometimes even inside one book, there are all these different literary styles coexisting.
0: When when you're writing these books and, and mixing these styles, it, it, what's really uh, fascinating for me as a reader is to encounter, you know, um, Ali's Ellie's perspective, Alice's perspective, mm-hmm. and, and immerse myself in her perspective, and and this is a familiar perspective, and then to to find myself in in the 13th century, in the perspective uh, uh, of you know a, a courtesan or or, or right. a slave or a beggar, it, right. it, it's the differences are striking, yet there's a kind of uh, I think an underlying uh, superstructure mm-hmm. um, that that enables me to get from one to the other. I and I have to wonder that you as a writer must uh, uh, do you like um, do, does this come out sequentially? Do you start up page 1 and end up on page 400x? Or <laughs> talk about maybe just your writing process? Is there a I, I get the feeling like, as I say these novel this, these novels seem very orchestrated. They're they're mm. beautiful and rich, and every part fits. And I and I thought, well, gosh, that's just you know that has a lot to do with with Rumi, who where who mm. saw music as a means to spirituality.
1: Right. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I learned a lot from Rumi and in general from Sufi philosophy, because you see in Sufism, every individual being is a microcosm is we, we reflect the, the universe, right? We have everything that exists in the universe exists inside us um, in different degrees. So even a person, let's say, who looks very kind and gracious and compassionate all the time, has a speck of, has a, just a little degree of badness in her. And even a person who looks very nasty and cruel and this and that has at least some degree of goodness in him. This is the way it is, you know. It's it's all a matter of degrees. In nobody, it's uh, it's it's never you know zero percent or a hundred percent. It's the the biggest difference is uh, between one percent and ninety nine percent. That's you know. So everything is always relative. Um, that's how I treat my, my characters as well. I mean, when I write about a personality, I don't put them on a pedestal. And this was one of the biggest challenges when I was writing this book, because on the one hand, I have a lot of respect for Rumi and for Shams of Tabriz. So while I was writing this novel, I did not want to offend their spirits. And I wanted to reflect that respect. However, I'm a novelist and I cannot, you know, turn them. I cannot put them on a pedestal. I cannot... Um, fetishize these people. I, I have to see them as human beings, and to be a human being means to to have conflicting multiple voices inside. You see, so that was a uh, like your books, like my books, like <coughs> myself. I think like like like all of us. There are all these inner inner voices, but this is a philosophy that I. That I cherish, and I've learned from from Sufism, and it matches perfectly with literature, because then you're able to create more vivid personalities instead of having heroes. I don't believe in heroes. In my books, there are no heroes. There are, you know, absolutely good characters, absolutely evil characters. There's no such thing. There are there are characters with lots of you know different assets and and conflicting voices. It,
0: this book too. Um, in, in some ways, you could you could view this book as a, in in a way as a, as a collection of short stories.
1: I, yes, in a way, because as each person speaks, uh, they tell their own story, you know. And I think every human being has so many stories, just they they're waiting to tell those stories. And that's why the art of storytelling is so universal. So in a way, yes, within my novels, I have these little windows, little layers and sometimes it works like sh- short stories, yes.
0: Do you, do you write short stories?
1: I don't write short stories very much. I love the novel as a genre. I think uh, it suits me so well in many ways. Walter Benjamin, he used to call the novel the loneliest form of art. You know, in, in o- almost all other um, spheres of art, it's very important to go out, to do teamwork. Like when you're a film director, even the most arrogant movie director has to learn to work with other people. Even, uh, you know, musicians, um, even even painters and, and, and cartoonists who do more individualistic work have to learn um, to balance their energy with other people's energies when they're doing exhibitions, performances, etc. But when you're a novelist, for very long periods of time, you retreat into your solitude and you think you're God. You think you're creating you know, these characters and killing them. You, you think you can do everything. So the, my work is based on loneliness. Uh, in many ways, it balances me. I, I cherish that, that loneliness. And the novel is, is, is a genre that suits me well. I, I, I like it. Y-
0: your novels bear no small resemblance to uh, Turkey itself.
1: <laughs> or to Istanbul, N- Istanbul yeah, yes. yeah, true, true. Uh,
0: talk true. about that kind of. Uh, how much does that environment um, seep into you when you're when you're at home on sitting in front of your computer mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, a- and engaged in in some mm-hmm. kind of mental role playing and immersed in the mind of a housewife in <laughs> Boston or you know a, a thief in in Baghdad? Uh, right. Uh, talk about how right. much. Uh crosstalk there is between the world that's around you and the world you create
1: oh, I think there's a lot of that I mean especially Istanbul is such a uh, such a huge source of inspiration. I think it's a treasure for artists and writers, you know for people who are interested in taking a closer look at life because there's so many layers in that city, like behind every gate it's full of stories. Um, life can be difficult in the sense that if you are the sort of person who likes, you know, life to be neat and tidy and ordered, Istanbul might not be, right, your cup of tea. <laughs> but otherwise, uh, bec- because there's so much traffic, chaos, this and that, you know, it's a very noisy city. But otherwise, as I said, for artists, it's it's really, really inspiring. And um, it's it's very cosmopolitan. It's It's a city of synthesis you know it has an amazing throbbing with energy it's not a slow moving city it's a very fast moving city and in my opinion it's a she city i've always res- i always thought istanbul was a was a woman you know
0: it it strikes me too that uh, i i think personally that, that turkey is is the closest thing that we have in the present <laughs> to the way that the world's going to look in the future in terms of the, the clash and, and, and the, the level of noise and, and crosstalk. <laughs> and it strikes me that one Elif Shafak, <laughs> some, what, three or four years ago, sat down and said, I'm going to write this book called 14 Rules of Love about this Ella Rubenstein." And, and now I'm talking to a, a rather different woman, aren't I? And what's she going to write? Oh,
1: thank you. and I'd, I'd <laughs> I've started my n- my new novel. I'm also working on uh, another book that was published in Turkey but uh, is not out in English yet. It's called Black Milk. and to this day, it's my only autobiographical book. you know it's based my on my personal experience about a little bit about postpartum depression, um, which I went through after giving birth to my first child. Um, But I also write about the harem inside me, you know, these multiple voices speaking multiple languages. Uh, It's a book about, you know, being a woman, a mother, a writer, trying to juggle many balls in the the air. So at the moment I am about to turn in um, the English translation, the English version, not the translation, but the English version of Black Milk. And then I also started my new novel, which most probably is going to have a very strong historical background. Um, and I also write lyrics for for musicians, for uh, really.
0: <laughs> can we? What? Who? Where can we get the um, music? But
1: this is, you know, these are musicians in Turkey, uh, mm-hmm. good musicians whom um, I respect a lot. And again, this was one of the gifts of motherhood for me because you, you see. Um, I I I had to readjust my working hours after becoming a mother. Sometimes when the kids are taking a nap, you have like 40 minutes to work. And it's not enough time to concentrate on the novels, but it's a good time to, to write lyrics, you know. So um, this is something I wasn't doing before. I've started doing it after becoming a mom and I'm enjoying it. So... Um, th- this is what I do. I mean, I think we we are students in life, every day we learn something new. And it's very important that a novelist should not repeat herself, you know, instead of repeating what I've done. Because I have had, inter- because the book was so successful in Turkey, I have had some uh, readers asking me, is there going to be a sequel, uh, like to follow the 40 rules of love, and they won't be, because I think every book is a new journey. That's what I like to do, you know, instead of repeating myself, repeating the energy I put in one book, just to make a new discovery with a new book uh, is, is, is something I prefer to do.
0: I, these books have a, a lot of history in them um, yeah. and a lot of reality in them. I mean, these are, you know, kind of gritty books in many ways, mm-hmm. and and it's it's f- Kind of mind-boggling that you can write a gritty book about the 13th century. Yes, uh, ta- you haven't lived there. Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, unless you've got a time machine, you're not telling us. About <laughs> <laughs> uh, tell us about the research you do, or how you prepare mm-hmm. yourself to to write in this in these different locales and histories.
1: Right. I mean, this, I think this is such an important part of writing a novel that has historical dimensions. Um, we have to do our research. We have to do our homework, and we can't be lazy. I have an academic background, an interdisciplinary background, which also penetrates into my writing. You know, in in in in many ways, I love doing research. And when I realize what I'm writing about, you know, as I keep moving, uh, I I stop and I do a lot of research. I read as much as I can. So for this book as well, I did I did the same thing. But there comes a stage when you stop reading, and from that moment onwards, it's you know what is left with you is what guides you. I mean, instead of you know consulting books anymore, I stop doing that and I and I write and I completely go back into this land of imagination and stay there when I'm writing. So there are two stages. First, a research stage, and then with everything that you have learned, you go back to your imagination so i can't say that this is, this is not a you know biography it's not like it's not an academic book on rumi this is the way i perceived rumi this is the way i perceived shams of tabriz maybe someone else is going to write in a different way right this is the beauty of it but to me this is the way they uh, appeared
0: one thing about your books is as immersed as we are in the characters' perceptions and in the, the real reality of their lives, um, there's an element of the fantastic, I think, to, to everything you write that, that it's not the reality that I can knock on with my hand. This, you, your books take place in a reality that we can really only touch with, I think, our emotions.
1: Yeah, I think um, that's that's exactly what reality is. I mean, using our minds, using our brains, especially our logic and reason, we can only um, grasp, you know, a bit of it. But to be fully, uh, or not even fully, but to, to understand reality better, I think we, we need to use our hearts as our guide. So emotions are very important to me. And emotions are not easy in this world because we always... In, in, in the culture we 're living in, in this modern age, it's always important to be you know, strong and um, you know, rational and logical. Sometimes we think emotions are connected with weakness. We treat them as if it were part of weakness, which I, I don't think is the case at all. I mean emotions are so important for us as human beings, you know and this is if we lose our emotions, we will be so disconnected from one another.
0: I've been speaking with Elif Sharp Her new novel is The 40 Rules of Love. Thank you for speaking with me, Elif.
1: I appreciate it very much. Thank you. <laughs>